Well, before we get started, I do want to say Happy Father's Day to the fathers that are out there. Um, if you if you came here hoping to hear a Father's Day message, I'm sorry to disappoint you. We have a day that overrules Father's Day. It's called the Lord's Day, so we're going to get back to that. We are in chapter 36 of Genesis. However, boy, would this be a great passage to preach a Father's Day sermon from. And here's why. We are going to see the difference between Jacob and Esau. We're going to see with Esau, we're going to see a man who is, by all the world's standards, he's everything they think you should be, especially that culture. He's well thought of, he's wealthy, he's influential, he's powerful, he's dignified. By the way, in, in Middle Eastern culture, especially um, the A&E, ancient Near Eastern culture, dignity was the big deal, especially for an older man. It was uh, very uncommon. You would not see an older man ever run or jog even in public. Why? Well, it was, it was thought of as undignified. And so you're going to see with Esau, he's everything the world thinks a man should be. But there's just one problem. He's not a godly man. And we're going to see that that percolates down through his descendants. And eventually, that will actually cause the, the utter annihilation of the people that come from Esau. Okay, so <laughs> turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 36. And, uh, and I'll run through a little bit. Let me set up the context by reviewing a bit of 34 and 35. I want you to remember, here's where this is at. Here's one of the reasons I'm saying that, by the way. I, um, in my process of, of making sermons, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll read through the, the chapter that I'm going to be preaching out of or the piece that I'm going to be preaching out of. I'll read through it over and over and over. I will make my exegetical notes. I'll outline it. Um, I'll look up all my commentary stuff and all that good stuff. And then at the very end of all of that, a lot of times I'll find two, three, four guys that are pastors that have preached a sermon or have a sermon online or they have their sermon notes online. And I'll go check. I have one of them that's a doppelganger for Brett Meisner. I'm telling you right now. I mean, he's tall, slender, very similar looking. So we've been joking that in his spare time, he's actually pastoring a, a church in Ontario. Because that's where this guy's at. But a lot of times what I'll do is I'll listen to them. And I'll make sure I'm not missing. Say, is there something that I haven't seen in here that they're going to bring out that I've missed that I shouldn't? Um, and every time that I've looked at this, this chapter is always lumped in with something else. It's like a throwaway chapter. It's as if somehow we're in the book of Genesis and this is really important stuff. And then we get to 36 and it's like, eh, also, here's Esau and his descendants. Okay, let's move on. But I want to show you today, that's not the way God does things. He does not put information in here that's superfluous. That is to say, he doesn't just put information in here for just no reason. Just arbitrarily, it's just there in case you'd ever need to reference it. No, there's something to be said and learned by this portion of Scripture. And so I'm determined to deal with it today as seriously as I would deal with chapter 35 or I would deal with chapter 37. All right. So, all that being said, last time I preached, we finished out chapter 35, right? And in doing so, we saw a lot of really insightful things about Jacob. We saw that in the midst of perhaps the most trying period of his life, he also experiences a deep and profound move of God. 
And I think that actually should be something that characterizes the Christian life. And there's a reason for that. When you get into the toughest parts of your life, the trials of life, when it feels like you're just being run over, where do you turn? See, the unbeliever will turn to the world. The unbeliever will go, you know what, I'm having a tough time. I'm going to go down to the bar and meet my friends and uh, drink my sorrows away. Or they might say, you know what I really need? I just need a girl's night out. There's lots of ways that the world copes with stress. But there is one way that the Christian copes with stress. And that is turning to the all-knowing, all-powerful God. Why? Because that's, that's the only place that you can find the one that has the power to change those circumstances. So we see this in chapter 35. We see Jacob going through tremendous stress and trial and in the midst of it, turning to God. Chapter 34, just think about what has happened in Jacob's life in just these two chapters of Scripture, okay? Chapter 34, we see the defiling of Jacob's only daughter, Dinah. I and mean, that's trying enough all by itself. You're dealing with the, the defiling, the rape of your only daughter. Do you think that would be a little bit stressful? But then to make matters worse, two of his sons decide to take matters into their own hands. They go down into Shechem. They, they hatch a plot. They get all the men of Shechem to go along with it. And they go down into Shechem and they murder every basically military-aged male in the entire place. So now your daughter's been defiled and two of your sons are mass murderers. Then, same chapter, his oldest son Reuben has an affair, or really probably more like a rape, of one of his wives. This is all in just this little piece. Then in chapter 35, God tells Jacob, hey, pack everything up and move. The land that you bought, the houses that you build, all these structures that you built for your livestock, yeah, leave it. Would that be stressful? If you've ever moved houses, you know moving is stressful. If you've moved but you've never had to move animals with it, you don't know what stress is yet. Let me tell you something. And I mean, you don't even have to have many of them. Just a few. Now you've got to make sure before you move there, are the fences okay? Can we keep the dog where are the cattle going to go? What, do we have room for the chicken? Whatever the animals are that you've got. He's got that too. And a huge family. Chapter 35. In the midst of all of that, what is God's plan for Jacob? God knows all the stress and the trials that are going on in Jacob's life. So what does God do? Does he tell Jacob, hey, Jacob, I know what's going on. It's getting rough. It's getting tough. Listen. I want you to take a seaside resort vacation. You know what? It's getting to, I think you need to pamper yourself a bit. Come on down. Actually, Jacob, you know what you need? You need a therapist to talk to. Spend a weekend at the men's retreat, Jacob. What is God's answer to all of this that Jacob is experiencing? You know what God's answer is? It looks from the outside like he's making it worse. Because God's answer to all of this craziness that's going on in Jacob's life is, Hey, Jacob, I want you to get up. I want you to go build an altar and sacrifice. S- excuse me? 
my life is being it's being poured out like water and you want me to go sacrifice to you? The world would look at that and call that crazy. But you see, that's the wisdom of God. In the middle of your trials and suffering, God is going to get your eyes back on him. That's the point. <clears throat> God's going to bring your eyes back to the only one that has full control over the circumstances. The only one that can control the storm that you're in. Why in the world should Jacob go and sacrifice when he's in the middle of such trial and tribulation? Because God is getting his eyes Back on him. Jacob, stop worrying about the storm. Remember, that was what Jacob said. His sons come up. They've killed everybody in Shechem, all these men. He goes, look what you've done. You've made us a target. Jacob is thinking about this. And for good reason, you would be too. And God is saying, Jacob, forget about that. Put your eyes on me. I'm the one that has control over the circumstances, not you. Your wisdom cannot change the circumstance. I can. Peter, stop looking at the wind and the waves and doubting and falling. Get your eyes back on Christ. Look up and behold the God-man who's walking on the water. If the God-man has your hand, it doesn't matter how much water is in that sea. And that's essentially what God is teaching Jacob. Sorry, my voice is... Going out here. By the end of chapter 35, we see Jacob not just in the depths of despair for all the things that we had mentioned, but he also loses his beloved wife in the process of giving birth to their youngest son and his father. Listen, that's stress. Jacob has had all of his dignity stripped away. He is, at this point, everything that that culture would have despised. You think they wouldn't have talked about him? Would they talk about you? Your only daughter was defiled because she was the one running around in places she shouldn't have been. And then your two boys go and they murder these guys. Would you be the talk of the town? You would probably be in the conversation as a side piece of someone not to emulate. You know who would be put up as the person to emulate? Look at Esau, though. Isn't he a wonderful boy? Look at how influential he is. Everybody knows him. He's wealthy. He's a leader of people and men. Why? Isn't that a guy you should aspire to be like? And what does God say about them in the book of Malachi? And then later, that's repeated on in Romans. Jacob have I loved, and Esau I have despised. Why? Why would God despise Esau? The whole world thinks highly of Esau. Why would God despise him? Well, because God knows the real Esau. The whole world just sees the accomplishments of Esau. And they go, wow, what a guy. And God in this chapter is going to show us something about that. He's going to fix our eyes again on him. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of that trial, Jacob having his dignity completely stripped away, being totally humiliated. In the midst of all of that, the Lord is doing a work of revival in Jacob's heart. 
We see Jacob drawing near to God again. We see a renewed hunger and passion for the Lord. We see him like a good father leading his family in personal holiness and devotion to the Lord. You know what we'd never see in the life of Esau? That. Never see that. We see that when Jacob doesn't know where to turn, he turns to God. And that's a pattern all of us could learn from. Jacob is blessed by God, and yet his life is full of hardship and trial and trying circumstances. How can that be? Esau is cursed by God, but his life is full of prosperity, pleasure, dignity, fame. Esau is the kind of man that most people in our culture would aspire to be like. You look at Esau and Jacob in these contexts, most of our culture would look at Esau and go, that's the guy I want to be like. Is it possible that we might have the wrong kind of idea of what it is to be blessed? I'm going to tell you guys, the vast majority of church culture, American church culture today, if you ask them, what does it mean to be blessed? They will start rattling out, well, you got a good job, you got plenty of money, you're prosperous, your kids are in good health, they're the star of the football team, she's the girl that everybody wants to be, she's the captain of the palm squad, right? That's how they would define being blessed. It's all these worldly standards. Well, Jacob doesn't have any of that, and God has said over and over and over that Jacob's blessed. How can it be that this man who's blessed is going through such trial and hardship? The blessing is not the the, the trappings of the relationship. Listen, if God makes you prosperous, that is not the blessing. The blessing is that you are in a relationship with Him, that you know Him. You have a salvific knowledge of Him. He's the one that's leading you and guiding you and watching over you and not just you, but your family. That is a blessing. That's what it is to be blessed by God. Listen, don't get me wrong. I want to make money too. Obviously. You've got to have enough money to pay the bills. And if you have more than enough money to pay the bills, you can put money behind a lot of godly works. And that's a good thing. We should aspire to that. But I want you to get out of this idea that having money is the blessing. It's not. You can have a lot of money and be living a life that is absolutely cursed by God. You can be living with a lot of money, close your eyes one night, your soul be required of you, and you find yourself in hell. And then you will realize when Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Then you will realize what blessing and cursing really is. Where do you turn when life gets too heavy? When you're crushed underfoot, when everything goes wrong. If you're blessed, if you know Christ, you turn to Him. You turn to the cross. Why? Because He's the one that can answer when friends can't. He's the one that can make a difference when the boss can't. What an ironic juxtaposition we see here. Chapter 36 shows us what happens to Esau and his descendants. We're going to see what happens to a man when he grows up hearing God but not fearing God. He grows up in a house where he hears all about God and it doesn't matter. Because he never has a changed heart. 
What happens when a person hears all about God and hears about living godly principles but never has a changed heart? They may live what from the outside looks to be a very successful life. And yet, at the end of it, it's broken. So before we get there, let's pray. Lord, we pray you show us great things from your word today. I ask you to use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let my preaching and my teaching today, Lord, be accurate to your word and to your spirit for the good of your people. Speak through your word today, Lord, for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and to you alone. For you alone are worthy of it, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name that we ask. Amen. A couple of points about Esau and the Edomites before we really get into expositing this chapter. Number one, because the Edomites were from Esau, the brother of Israel, you may remember God did not allow Joshua to invade and conquer them. Remember that? And by the way, that was after Edom slighted them. Right? They want to come back and uh, the Edomites tell them, you can't use our roads. Don't come through our place. Don't come through our land, right? If you were Joshua, what would you think? Okay. We can't come through your land. Tell you what, we'll come through your land and we'll take you out. And God says, no, you're not going to do that because they're your brother. They did us wrong. And God says, no, you're not going to do that. They're your brother. God, don't you, they, they deserve that. No, you're not going to do that. They're your brother. By the way, that very exchange later becomes the reason that God sends judgment to them. God, in essence, is telling Joshua, you're not going to handle this yourself. I will. You just do what's right. You just walk with integrity. I'll handle the judgment. And that's what happens. Number two, they really inhabited a pretty small area. It's only about 20 miles wide, 100 miles long. Not a real big place, but it was extremely wealthy. I, my guess is that's probably why Esau wanted to move there. He realized that his herds and his brother's herds couldn't really coexist in the same place. They're just too big. We'll see that in the chapter. And so he moves. But he moves, basically he moves to what you would think would be the wrong place, essentially. Why are you moving to this place? There's not good lands for your flocks. There's not a lot of grass here. It's, it's kind of the wilderness area. Why would you move there? You know what there was there? There was lots of copper deposits. This is a Bronze Age culture. To make bronze, you have to mix copper and tin, and actually about 65% copper. So if you have copper mines in a Bronze Age society, you're going to be wealthy. And that's exactly what happened with that area. They were very prosperous because of all the copper deposits. Really, Edom only had about three or four major cities. I mean, it's only I mean, it's kind of like Oklahoma, right? How many major cities do you have in Oklahoma? Not a lot. Right? Oklahoma City, Tulsa, maybe Lawton. But there's not a bunch. Ada would probably not make that list, in case you're wondering. Stratford certainly would not make that list where I live. Right? Really, the three big ones are like Sela, which would become today, it's known as Petra. You may have heard of Petra. In the, in the country of Jordan, Petra is very significant because the people living there realized, hey, it's really hard to like make a fortress out here. 
You know, you got to stack stones on top of each other. It's really, but what we could do instead of that is we could just dig into the mountains. Petra was so well known in the ancient time as being an, in, like, an unconquerable fortress. It was said at that time that 12 fighting men inside of Petra could hold off an army. I mean, it's, which, speaking of which, should have been doing this already. Like, which you can see from the, oh yeah, no, you can't actually see from the, there you go. This is Petra. Part of it, I should say, part of Petra. This is the most well-known. Um, to get to Petra, you've got these huge cliffs that form a very narrow kind of winding valley. Very easy to defend. Because you have to send your army in like in a file, right? In a, not, not a single file per se, but they're not very wide. They're not very broad. And from there, it's like it's sniper's paradise, right? You can sit on the top of these, these cliffs with bows and just pick them off all day. And there's nothing they can do about it. And then when they finally get there, you've got one door that's able to basically be defended. There's, it's a choke point after choke point after choke point. So the people, the Edomites that end up inhabiting this place are very, very haughty about it. They basically go, look, nobody could ever bring us out of this place. Nobody could ever defeat us. Look at this place that we've got. And God tells them later, your haughty eyes, I will bring you down. You think I can't get you out of there? Oh, I sure can. He brings in uh, some nomadic tribesmen called the Nabataeans. They come in and they will actually be the judgment on. They'll defeat the Edomites. They'll pull them out of Petra. They really will, which is incredible. They also had Timnah or Timon. <clears throat> which was known for their wisdom. You can see it down here at the bottom. The, this, if you can think of Greek culture, you know how the Greeks are, were well known for, they've got the sages and their wise men and uh, their philosophers, their love of wisdom, if you will. This is that only centuries beforehand. You could even make the argument that this may have been the seedbed for that. Exchange with that. Tim no. Or Taman was so well known for their wisdom, it's actually referenced in, in the book of Jeremiah. 49.7, Jeremiah says, is there no more wisdom in Taman? Right? And we're going to see a really, really wise guy from that place. Wise guy. We're going to see a wise guy from that place. Early mafia. Just kidding. Not actually. Wise man, maybe I should say, from that place that you've known. You've heard of him. You've read about him. He's actually the son of Esau. He is a very wise man. But what we're going to see is in all of his, there's lots of diatribes that the Bible actually records of him. And it's the world's wisdom. And then they had Basra, which was their capital city. They also had a port city. <coughs> but there's some history here between the Edomites and Israel. Let me give you a little bit of it. When Jerusalem was conquered and the inhabitants were marched off as captives by Babylon, guess what the Edomites did? They took major advantage of the situation. After Israel was captured and defeated, if Jerusalem was defeated by uh, Babylon, the Edomites basically decided, hey, this is the time. Let's go up there and plunder their other cities. They're weak. They can't defend it. And so they did. They plundered them. In fact, a lot of them, uh, they, they took advantage of the situation so far to such extent that they would capture, extort. In some cases, they would even kill the Israelites that are their brothers. So there's some history here. 
God would promise them judgment. And that pronouncement of judgment, by the way, is contained in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the smallest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses. And it's basically a, the entire thing is just a pronouncement of woe on Edom, on Esau's descendants because of their ungodliness. All right. All that being said, let's get into this. 36. Starting at verse 1, of course. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholabama, the daughter of Anah. The daughter of Zibion the Hivite. And Basimath, Ishmael's daughter. Notice this. Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboeth. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz. Interesting. Basimath bore Reuel, Olohobama bore Jeshua, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Did anyone notice me mispronounce some of those names? No, because you don't know how to pronounce them either, so don't tell me that I'm wrong. (laughs) I'm doing my best here. Verse 6, Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all of his beasts, and all of his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. Now hold up. Wasn't this the guy that was so mad because he was going to lose the blessing, which was to remain in the land of Canaan? Wasn't this the guy who was willing to kill his brother over the stuff that was going on in Canaan? And now he gets a little restless and goes, yeah, it's nice that we have all this stuff, but... There's a bigger prize to be had down south. How interesting. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Sear. Esau is Eden. Now here's the, here's the deal. If he was looking for a good place to put his livestock, he would not go south to this place. No, instead he's looking for, there's, there's wealth and riches to be had. Just like at one point in time that was going on in our country, right? Go west, young man. Where will I find my riches? Go west. Get to California. Get in on the gold rush, right? This is kind of like that, only it's probably for copper. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's son, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Raul, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. Okay, Eliphaz, the son of Adah. You've seen this guy before. Where? Can you remember reading about this guy? This is Eliphaz, the Temanite. Remember I told you? Timon was very well known for wisdom. It probably derives from this guy. He was the ruler of that area. Supposedly the sage of that area. It makes sense that you'd want your smartest guy to be the ruler. You know, look at our country. Anyway, I'll give you a hint. Taman was a city known for being home to sages and wise men. And this guy would take, at one point in time in his life, would travel a long way to comfort a suffering friend. Turn with me to the book of Job. Job 2.11. Chapter 2, verse 11. 
My purpose is not to exposit the book of Job today, but I do want to show you this. Verse 11 says this, chapter 2, verse 11, the book of Job. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, that is Esau's son. Bildad the Shuite, remember last, uh, last time I preached we talked about the Shuites. That is an early form of what would then eventually become known as Bethlehem, right? So we've got Eliphaz the Temanite, who's Esau's son. We have Bildad the Shuite, who's from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Judea, remember there were two Bethlehems. He's from the Bethlehem that would produce you know, Boaz and Ruth and, of course, eventually Christ. And Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show his sympathy and comfort him. They're going to come show sympathy. If you read the rest of the book, you find out they were a little lacking on the sympathy part, right? Why? After Job's complaints in chapter 3, Eliphaz was the first of the friends to speak. By the way, if you're reading that in the original language, he is a lot more gentle in the way that he speaks than the other guys. But... His speech in chapters 4 and 5, which is his first speech, he makes three in the book of Job, focuses on the theme of the innocent prospering. In other words, his wisdom was this. Eliphaz thought, Job, you're suffering because you've done some great evil and you don't want to admit it. You're a very wealthy man. You're a very powerful man. You probably used all of that to do some corrupt thing. And now God is punishing you because if you were, if you were upright, if you were walking righteous in, in, before the Lord, you wouldn't be going through all of this stuff. Now, does that sound like wisdom? It does. It does. Let me tell you why. It, it's very easy for me to go, and you and anyone else, to go out and find people. There are a lot of people in our society, you can go on and find them on any street corner, who are suffering greatly because of their own sin. Right? You got a friend or you got a family member that gets into meth? Let me know how that goes. Right? You'll have a life that is broken because of their own sin. You can do the same thing. People that get into uh, a lot of relationships where they're sleeping around and they end up with a life of just broken, shattered pieces and probably diseases and other things because of their own sin. So it makes sense to him. He goes, look, people that are living upright don't suffer. It's the people that are sinners that suffer. Well, that's the wisdom of the world. Is that ever the case that because we live in a sin-cursed world, the righteous suffers too? Has that ever been the case? I mean, can you find anybody in the New Testament, read through the book of Acts, that suffers for righteousness' sake? Yeah, lots of them. Yeah, so it may be, when you have suffering in someone's life, it is true, it's possible, maybe it is because of their own sin. But it's also possible to suffer for righteousness' sake. And it's also possible to suffer simply because we live in a sin-cursed world. And the people that you're around are sinners too. So just because we see suffering in someone's life does not mean, ha-ha, you are harboring secret sin. And that's what Eliphaz thought. From Eliphaz's perspective, God would only allow great evil to befall someone who had themselves done great evil. That's the world's wisdom. 
He goes on, he makes two or three more speeches, but they're all about that tenor, okay? <clears throat> Eliphaz was askew in his theological deductions, even though he was full of great wisdom. It was the world's wisdom. And that's actually the point. Eliphaz, who was so full of wisdom, was an Edomite. There was a lot of wisdom to be had in Timon. Just like there was a lot of wisdom to be had in the Greeks' writings. But that wisdom was the wisdom of the world. It wasn't God's wisdom. And the New Testament says what about the world's wisdom? It's sensual and demonic. It's not as wise as it may seem. All right, let's go on. Verse 11. The sons of Eliphaz were Timon, probably who the town was named for, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Canaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. The wisest man in the east, other than Job, has a son that becomes the Amalekites? How does that happen? Well, if you teach your children to be wise, but you don't teach them the wisdom of the Scripture, you know what you're going to get at the end of the day? A really good Pharisee. Someone who's really good at pretending, giving nod to God and His ways and, and fearing Him and His Word, but actually living by the wisdom of the world. And you know what you'll get at the end of the day? A monster. That's what you'll get. You'll get a monster. And that's what they got. Job's friend Eliphaz also happened to be the father of the Amalekites. How interesting. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. Verse 13. These are the sons of Ruel, Nathan, Zerah, Shema, Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. So we're noticing something. We're noticing a bunch of people are coming out of Edom who are going to be the principal enemies of Israel. And why? Because they're going to operate by the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. And they will become the enemies of God because of that. Seventeen, these are the sons of Rule, Esau's sons, the chiefs Nathan, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Rule in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs Joash, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholabamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these are their chiefs. 20, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite. Now, these are the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the son of Seir in the land of Edom. By the way, these are the people who were inhabiting the land before Esau came down. 
And what would end up happening is actually they would intermarry with them or drive them out. So they're displacing them. Does that make sense? These are the ones who are already there. Now think about this. They're going to intermarry with these people. Remember, Esau doesn't have any qualms intermarrying with pagan people, right? I mean, the Bible told us earlier that he intermarried with Canaanites and the wives were a, a, a menace to his, his folks. And he still did. He didn't care. That's basically what's going to happen with the Horites as well. They are a wicked culture. Incredibly wicked culture already. How do we know their culture was so wicked? Um, let's, let's do the next couple verses and then I'll show you. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Himam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. The sons of Shobal, Alvin. You might put an underline under Alvin or something. Star it in your mind anyway. Alvin. Manaheth, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. <coughs> you know what Alvin means in their language? Wicked. Would you name your son that? They would. Ithran in verse 26 means advantage. And by that we mean a person who takes advantage of others. That's literally what his name means. We got one guy named Wicked and we got another guy named he'll take advantage of you. Another guy, Baal Hanan, in verse 38, was named after the false god Baal. This is a wicked culture. Let's go on. Verse 24. These are the sons of Zibion, Ara and Ana. He is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father, which, by the way, was a big deal. I don't have enough time to go into it today, though. These are the children of Ana, Dishon, and Aholabama, the daughter of Ana. 26. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdam, Eshbon, Ithran, and Sharon. 27, these are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavon, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. Notice that? These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Haran. Sometimes we say Uz. The land of Uz, you may have heard of. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites. Chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Danabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Now listen, there are some commentators who, aren't, who think that Jobab is actually the biblical Job. Probably not. I won't get into a lot of that today, but Job is actually mentioned in other places as well and in lineages. I doubt this is the actual Job, but there are some guys who say that, so I'll, I'll tell you that just to be aware of. Jobab, the son of Zerah of, Bo, of Basra, reigned in his place. Remember, Basra was the capital city. So this was a very influential, wealthy guy. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab. You may remember the Midianites and Moab. He reigned in his place, the name of his city being Abath. Hadad died, and Samla of Masraketh reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal-Hanan, there he is, the son of Akbar. Reign in his place. 
Baal Hanan, the son of Akbar, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city, city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehedabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mesehab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timna, Alva, Jetheth, Oholabama, Elah, Pinon, not Pinion. That'd be nuts, huh? <laughs> That's bad. I'm sorry. I've told you before, I hold back a lot. Y'all should be very thankful to the Lord. Every ADD thought that comes through my mind doesn't make it into the sermon. Pinon, Kenaz, Taman, Mizbar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That's possible, by the way, where we get the name of the, the country of Iran today. It has been, is it possible that it goes back to this guy? It is possible. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Okay, let me give you a few teaching points and wrap this up. Edom, as you know, means red. <coughs> and, and that was the name by which Esau himself was called, which makes sense. He was red and hairy. He also sold his birthright for a bowl of red stew. But probably that area was known as Edom even before that. Why? Because the dirt there is red. The rocks there are red. You probably saw that earlier, right? If we're looking at, say, the cliffs of Petra, they're very red. Right? Very red. Edom, though, ceased to exist as a definable people. They would go from here until basically just after Christ. The first century A.D., we, they, we lose track of them. They're wiped out. And part of that is because God told them that he would do that. Who is the last one that we know of? Don't blow your mind. Well, believe it or not, the last one that we knew of was King Herod. He was what was called an Idumean, which is basically Edomites that then migrated. When, when all the wars were going on, many of them migrated basically up north. They came into Judah. They kind of mingled themselves in with that culture, and they became known as the Idumeans. But that's Edomite. King Herod was an Edomite. And by the way, the reason that he hated the birth of Jesus was... His father, Antipas, had taken a title onto himself. He was set up by the Romans to be the governor over basically the Jews of that area. And so he took onto himself the title of king of the Jews. He passed that title down to his son, Herod the Great. Well, I call him Herod the Great. But Herod took the title of king of the Jews. So when these wise men come and say, hey... Where is this one who was born king of the Jews? Herod says, time out. He sees in his mind a political rival. Oh, I have someone that's going to be the king in my place? Let's find him and kill him. The man who's trying to find and kill these people is an Edomite. He used the title as the king of the Jews, and he is, like I said, the last one, historically speaking, that we know of. That is not to say that there are not people out there who are carrying the genes of Esau. There are, obviously. In fact, many of the um, 
Uh, remember, he married one of Ishmael's daughters. There are many in the Middle East, especially in Muslim cultures, the Arabian Muslims today, who at least claim to be descended from, from them. That's possible. But Eden was condemned by the prophets, especially Obadiah. And here's the whole point of that. <clears throat> the point that I want you to see in this passage is this. Esau looked like he was really, really blessed. And yet what we see in his lineage is absolute wickedness. Why? Because he just didn't care too much about God. By the way, it's not like he was atheist. It wasn't like he was sleeping in on Sunday. He just didn't care. Just going through the motions. He was still there. Just going through the motions. Is that you? If you are, I'm praying that today the Lord would do a work in your heart. I'm praying he would press on your heart how serious it is that in all of the wisdom that we as fathers try to impart to our kids, in all of that, let none of that overshadow pressing on them the necessity of Christ. If you teach them everything, if you make them the wisest kid that ever walked, if they get a full ride to Harvard, and then they get the big job after that, and they become well-known and famous like Esau, everybody knows him and loves him, and you brag about who your son is, but he does not know Christ, and at the end of his days, he is dead and on his way to hell, what good was it? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What's the difference between Esau and Jacob? One realized that and one didn't. One mistook material things as the blessing of God. And one of them knew the blessing of God is walking with God. And I hope that we as Christians do not forget that today. Listen, don't come to Jesus because he'll give you a better life. Don't come to Jesus because he'll make you rich and famous. If you come to Jesus and you are baptized, that is signifying the death of your dreams, the death of your goals for you. You know what Jesus might make you? He might make you insignificant. You know why? Because he's going to crush your pride. Why would he do that? Because he's conforming you to the image of his son. And yet in your insignificance, you might find out, or actually you won't find out, it'd be others, two or three or four hundred years after you're gone, you had an incredible impact for the kingdom of Christ. Now, if you would rather be the rich and famous guy that people talk about after you die and not be with God, you, your heart needs to be born again. You're Esau. But if you're willing to give up all of those, all of the, the fame, the riches, the significance, to follow Christ, now that's the heart of Jacob. That's the heart of the believer. And that's the heart's posture that we should be stressing to our own children, to those that come and follow after us. Here is the torch of faith. Pick it up and run with it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the warnings of your word. God, let your word shock us, wake us up from our spiritual lethargy, 
Let us be a people who are serious about following you, who are serious about training our children who come after us to follow you. Remind us again, Lord, that following Christ may be free, but it's not cheap. It will cost us our lives. It will cost us our dreams, our significance, our fame, our egos. But at the end of the day, if we have you, if we have Christ, it's well worth it. Lord, we ask you would use our lives to make an impact for your kingdom, Lord. The children that are around us and the homes that we live God, I ask you would make us good fathers, fathers that love you, fathers that again and again and again point their children to you, fathers whose eyes are on the cross. I thank you for that, Lord. I ask you would do it by the power of your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.